So, Jay, here's the thing that gets me about the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Uh, which Brotherhood, Miles? Uh, the originals. You know, Silver Age. Is it the name? Because I've always thought that was pretty silly. No, I mean, I mean, yes, but, but how did Magneto end up with that group? I mean, can you imagine going out to recruit henchmen for your bid for world domination, and then deciding that Toad was exactly what you needed? Oh, oh no, no, Miles, those weren't the only mutants Magneto tried to recruit. They're just the ones who actually took him up on it. Who else did he go after? Well, let's see, Namor for one. Aiming high. I respect that. Namor respected it somewhat less. <laughs> right. Didn't Magneto recruit Polaris at one point? It turned out that that Magneto was actually a robot replica, so I'm not counting it. Uh, of course. Okay, who else? Possibly Astra. Astra? Teleporter, generally fairly mysterious. Um, although we've really only got her word from the, for the Brotherhood connections, and she's both a notoriously unreliable narrator and kind of obsessed with Magneto. How obsessed are we talking? Uh, let's see, tried to kill him a few times. But really, who hasn't? And cloned him. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 199 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to So Much Comic Book. We'll get to that in a second, but first, Jay, you pointed out in the outline, yeah, 199? Huh? Yeah, that's a lot. Oh, it, it really is. Like, I still remember when we started this thing, and I, I didn't know how long it would last. I figured it would just be a little project we'd do for a few weeks and then get bored and no one would listen, and, well... Yeah, no, I remember having other friends who did podcasts or who'd been doing podcasts for a long time and were coming up on like their 200th episode. I was like, bullshit, no podcast lasts for three or four years. That is nonsense. That's just that I, I don't even understand the skiba in which this happens. And um, yeah, I, I guess I understand it slightly better now. I actually don't. I have no idea how we've managed to keep this going for this long. I guess there are a lot of X-Men. I mean, part of it for me, honestly, is that this has just become so much a part of my life. Like, working a little bit on the upcoming episode every day is just part of, of who I am at this point, you know? This is what we do now. This is who we are. I mean, kind of, yes. And we're going to be the best darn substitute Glee Club Wait. I mean, I can just growl 70 stuff. You can sing some stuff. No, and I can't, though, because my, I, I, my voice isn't predictable pitches at all right now. Ah, well, there is that. Maybe someday. Yeah. Regardless, we have so much comic book for you. So, Jay, what are we covering today? Today we are covering Shattershot. We are, which I gotta say is both a great and super dumb name for a storyline based around Shatterstar. I think overall I feel okay about it. It sounds like Shatterstar and Longshot's couple name, which definitely not because they are definitely not a couple. But yeah, that's that's sort of what I'm hearing here. I don't know. I mean, Shatterstar's real name is, as we found, Shatty Buns, so I feel like Long Buns would be their couple name, but that sounds terrible, too. I don't know. I'm not sure that there's a good answer here. Shatty Star? Or Shatty, Shatty Shot? Shatty Shot. I, I don't know. That just makes me think of Caddyshack, and that's totally the wrong vibe. But we may be getting off track immediately, so... Shattershot is the, the crossover that spanned all of the 1992 X-Book annuals. 
So this is sort of like the last couple of years, what happened there. We had Days of Future Present a couple of years before this, and Kings of Pain one year before this. Now, each of those had a non-X book involved. They wanted four chapters, so Days of Future Present got Fantastic Four, Kings of Pain got New Warriors. This time, we do have four core X titles. So here we are with a bunch of outlines that we couldn't really abridge since they were less X-related. So I hope you appreciate this horrifying 12-page outline we're looking at, listeners. There are also a lot of backup stories. The thing I love, though, is that there, there's so much content and so little story. I know. And that's something that the 90s, I don't know, to me, that, that's part of what defines the 90s. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, because what you get instead of story is a whole lot of fight scenes. And... I mean, a fight scene done well is really, really fun. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just very different from what we're used to from the Claremont era. So I kind of want to talk about the general reception to this because Shattershot is one of those massively reviled events. And now that I've read it, I have no idea why. Like, it's not among the best, but it's fun and it's really not terrible by any stretch. And... Some of it is good. It's got a lot of really good ideas and motifs in it, even if they don't quite come together. The fact that the first two chapters don't have much actually happen, and the third and fourth chapters, while fun, are pretty much unrelated. I mean, the conclusion to the story is only tenuously connected to anything else in the storyline. And it works. It's a good story. And for me, that makes me like Shattershot better overall, because the last chapter, I think, is the best. But, uh, yeah, it's not exactly a cohesive unit the way something like the Asgardian Wars, or even more so Inferno, were. Well, except in as much as it's technically part of Inferno, because as we've established, it's always Inferno here. So, you know, I mentioned that this is a reviled event, and... I'm not just talking about fan and critical reception. Uh, rumor has it, and this is unsubstantiated rumor, that Niseza has has said that if he could if he could disavow any story he's written, it would be this one. Supposedly, Jim Lee said that he wished he could buy back every copy of this story from every fan. I don't know if that's true, but it's a good story, so I kind of hope it is. Does that mean he hates it or he loves it? Oh, that's true. Maybe he loves it so much that he wants to own every copy and just, like, make a Scrooge McDuck-style vault filled with all the issues of Shattershot and swim around in it and get a lot of paper cuts, probably. I mean, they were on newsprint. They were, they were pretty soft. But, again, I think that, assuming that these rumors are true, that these guys are being too hard on this event. It is not Nicias's best work. Um, it's a point where he, he writes the bulk of the crossover and, as we've mentioned, he's a lot stronger when he's got freer reign and not trying to fit himself into the tone of other people's writing and books. And he's doing a lot of that here, and it, it holds him back a little bit. But it's, it's fun, and the art is really solid throughout. Yeah, we'll get to some of that in particular. But in the meantime, we have a lot of story to get through, and we also have a lot of context. So, previously in and around the Mojoverse... Honestly, instead of this recap, you should probably pause this episode, go listen to episode 49 again, and then come back. But if you don't, we'll tell you that the Mojoverse is a terrible dimension where the masses are pacified by contrived reality-adjacent entertainment and a horrible self-obsessed despot who only cares about ratings runs things. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Uh, mm, mm. Yeah, yeah. What's ironic is that this was conceived, you know, decades and decades ago. But anyway, an amnesiac rebel from the Mojoverse has escaped a few times to Earth-616, the main Marvel universe. This is Longshot. He's got luck powers based on his intentions being pure and a glowing eye and a rad blonde mullet and a lot of little throwing knives. And he has, at various points, run around ha having adventures and for a while teamed up with the X-Men. 
Now, after finding out uh, his first time to Earth-616 that he'd been created by a Mojoverse inventor named Arise to lead a rebellion against Mojo and the other ruling spineless ones, Longshot went back to do just that, along with his new allies Quark, who is a ram-headed guy native to the Mojoverse, and Ricochet Rita, a rad stuntwoman from Earth-616. But apparently that rebellion went badly because a while later and again Amnesiac Longshot appeared in the X-Men's Danger Room and stayed with the team for a while, including a lot of their tenure in the Australian Outback. The last time we saw Longshot, he was in the Mojoverse again, this time losing a rebellion despite the help of Dazzler and Lila Shaney. Meanwhile, the X-Teams have another refugee from the Mojoverse. This is a guy named Shatterstar, actually Govidra 7, who's gotten even radder and more righteous mullet. He took a cue from Longshot and teleported from the Mojoverse to X-Force's Danger Room. And now he is teaming up with them. Unlike Longshot, Shatterstar was specifically a star in the Mojoverse. He was an arena fighter, and he really liked that life. He would like to get back to it. Another Mojoverse refugee is Spiral, a six-armed teleporting lady with a hate on for Longshot, who's also Mojo's former lieutenant. She's been on Earth for a while, villaining it up, including in Freedom Force, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants who worked for the government for a while. Yeah, so that was nominally reformed villaining it up. Um, and she's, she's the only member of Freedom Force who's not a former affiliate of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, I believe. Yeah, it was always kind of weird that she joined up, but I like seeing more of her, so that was cool at least. I guess let's jump straight into the story. Uh, this is, starts with X-Men Annual Number 1, the first of the new, the new series, The Slaves of Destiny. And oh, these credits are something. It is written by Fabian Nicesa. It is penciled, however, by <gasps> P. Craig Russell, Brian Stelfreeze, Adam Hughes, Stuart Eminen, Dan Pinosian, Greg Capullo, and Mark Texiera, and inked by P. Craig Russell, Brian Stelfreeze, Joe Rubenstein, Harry uh, Candelario, Dan Pinosian, and Mark Texiera, and colored by Joe Rosas. That is so many artists. I mean, it kind of reminds me of our last episode with those Excalibur special editions that had a bunch of them. Yes and no. It's not clearly sectioned like the Excalibur annuals were, where you had mini stories with a, a different artist on each chapter. In this one, they're just going smoothly from one to the other. And I actually kind of dig it. It's not something I would like that much in a regular title unless there was a reason for it. But annuals to me have always felt like a place to play around with style to show off a lot of a lot of different artists. I mean, probably because I read ones like these early on. <laughs> so I'm cool with that. And all of these folks are working similarly enough that it, the transitions aren't really jarring. Like you can tell it's a different person, but we're, you're not, you know, jumping between Liefeld and Mignola. Right. Seriously. We open with a battle on Mojo World over set with the journal of Arise. Journal entry, day the last. I know, I do. I say that every day I place an entry. But this day, I am certain will be my last one of freedom. Mojo's forces have breached the last remaining rebellion stronghold. Indeed they have. We are under siege. I am being scurried to the lower depths of the bunker. Coddled like an infant I am. They say, they do, that I am too important to capture. Yet I do believe I am the very reason that everyone is fighting to begin with. Odd, I think. After all, if it weren't for me, there would not be a rebellion, for there would not be a slave race which needed to rebel. All this blood, then, I guess, is on my hands. My name is Arise. I am a creator of life, yet I am responsible for the deaths of over 13 million beings. That's heavy, bro. Right? Also, what's probably heavy is this giant goddamn beard that I appreciate so much. It's a great beard. It's huge. 
Meanwhile, above ground, our old friend Quark, that's Longshot's ram-headed rebel pal, is taken down by a duplicitous squad of Mojo's dog soldiers, who also uncover the secret bunker where Arise is hidden. Ruh-ro. Now, before we go on with the plot, I kind of want to take a second to talk about this fight and to talk about the Mojo world politics as they're represented in this story, because they're weird, or rather, they're weird for the Mojoverse, which is to say they're not as weird as they feel like they should be. Yeah, I mean, you have this group of rebels who are mostly the, you know, bipedal entities that Arise has created or modified the Spineless Ones into, who are on, who are sort of the entertainment fodder for the Spineless Ones, and they're having a war with the Spineless Ones, a very direct war. Now, as I understand it, this is all being filmed, and this becomes part of the media that the Spineless Ones feed to everyone in the Mojoverse, so it kind of makes sense. But they're fighting a fairly normal war with fairly normal weapons to fairly normal ends. Like, we're not seeing metaphor guns. It's true, yeah. The Mojoverse has always been like an intergalactic, more conceptual version of Arcade's murder world. And we just don't see that at all here. It's very direct. Well, and it's always been, it's always had an element of the ludicrous to it. And that kind of goes away here. And by the same token... Uh, Naseza just doesn't quite have Mojo's manic bluster down. Weirdly, he nails Arise in some really cool ways. He manages to give Arise speech patterns that echo Mojo's without Mojo's Mojo-ness. So, you know, theoretically, a guy who grew up speaking the same languages with the same cadence, but managed to stay reasonably in possession of himself. Yeah, I actually like Naseza's version of Arise even better than Nasenti's. I think this is the definitive Arise in this story. Yeah, agreed. So anyway, back in the fight, Mojo nearly manages to capture Arise, but Arise manages to fake his own death and grab a portal back to Earth. Unfortunately, without Spiral as an intermediary, because Spiral can control dimension hopping, this is going to destroy Arise's mind. Whoops. Meanwhile, in stately Xavier Manor... Danger Room Adventures. Now, this is a scenario we've basically seen before. Different sets of X-Men competing with each other to reach an objective first. Rogue and Gambit are waylaid by their bickering, the danger room itself, and by Gambit being kind of an asshole. Gambit blows Rogue's costume partially off, so take an uncomfortable drink. Or maybe, like, throw it on someone? Yeah, maybe that. But anyway, Beast and Psylocke, who are much better at informed consent, reach the door first, only to get attacked by Wolverine. Cyclops takes this as a teaching moment. Sometimes reaching a goal, a destination, does not always mean that you've accomplished your mission. If you get complacent three quarters of the way home, you'll never make it through the front door. I mean, he's not wrong. Honestly, I kind of expected this theme to end up more salient to the general story. I'm just imagining this sort of X-Men equivalent of Zeno's paradox, but I don't think that's what Scott was probably going for. You never know. The X-Men are a complicated metaphor. They are, but this teachable moment, this lesson is cut off by a signal from Cerebro. There's something alien in Afghanistan, which kind of seems like a weird thing for Cerebro to detect, but I guess let's just go with it. It's it's sort of mutant-ish. Cerebro is fairly clear on it being at least tangentially relevant to, to the main mission. Um, we, the readers, have probably already worked out, and if not, we're telling you, it's Arise. So the X-Men head out to see what's up, but Mojo also sends a retrieval team broadcasting live. It turns out Arise is in a Mujahideen camp. It's spelled kind of funky. It's spelled Mujahideen, which is not the right spelling. And because it's 92, they're the good guys. 
uh, even after fl- firing some missiles at the Blackbird, because the Cold War was pretty fucked up. Maybe we should talk a little bit about who these people are. Like, it's not directly relevant, but it's just so bizarre to read this in 2018. Okay, the Mujahideen were, are, I mean, it basically literally just translates to jihadists. They were jihadists usually fighting against Soviet-backed governments, usually sponsored and given weapons by the United States because this was how shit played out. Again, the Cold War was terrible. I would make a joke about how we don't do that anymore, but, um... Hmm. Well, no. But yeah, uh, they had a lot of infighting going on. Um, The Taliban was actually an offshoot of some of the Afghani Mujahideen. And Osama bin Laden came to prominence aiding the ones in Afghanistan. So it's a whole thing. But the X-Men are pretty friendly toward them, despite being uh, fired on by their missiles. Yeah, I wonder if there's another annual where they're buddies with the Contras. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Uh, Not the ones from the video game. Although that would be a crossover I would really enjoy. Anyway, um, yeah, if, 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 you are, if you are young and new to this stuff, uh, there's a reason that people get real pissy and cynical when they talk about American interventionalism during the Cold War, and in general. But yeah, this was particularly gross and brought a lot of really horrible folks into power, and generally just sort of upset a lot of vaguely democratically elected governments. And the US and the Soviet Union kind of used everyone else to play out their big weird conflicts because they couldn't actually fight directly because, you know, nuclear war is bad and it would have been. So, uh, I guess it could have been worse. There's our silver lining. Shattershot. The Cold War. It could have been worse. Yes, okay, Shattershot. Let's talk about Shattershot. Let's do. Shattershot is much better than the Cold War, I guess. Yes. <laughs> I, that's, that's such a lukewarm recommendation. It is, though. It is better than the Cold War. And thanks to Beast, everything gets worked out, and the X-Men discover that Arise is nearby. And we actually also get a brief reprise of the revelation that Wolverine spoke Japanese in X-Men number 118, this time played out between Wolverine and Beast. I didn't know you spoke Pushti. You never asked. That's actually a really charming callback. Okay, but what's extra weird about it is that it is clearly a callback, except Beast wasn't there. Wolverine was, but Beast was still running around with Jean Grey because they'd all gotten separated in the Savage Land. I assumed that once Beast got back to the team, he just read X-Men number 118 to catch up on what he missed. Yeah, that would make sense. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Arise, like much of X-Men, is incoherent. He's also semi-conscious, and none of the X-Men recognize him until Psylocke walks in. Psylocke realizes that he's from the Mojoverse, which he's able to confirm with telepathy. As you may recall, Psylocke's actually got some history with Mojo and with the Mojoverse, mostly with Spiral's Body Shop, which is where one goes to get souped up and, in Psylocke's case, get fancy robot eyes that, unbeknownst to her, were broadcasting everything she saw to the Mojoverse. Um, She's also been there, I think, in the course of a a New Mutants annual. Now, I really like the way this plays out. Psylocke sees some uh, scenes from Arise's past, and she sees a bunch about Longshot, and... Longshot is described as being the fallen messiah, as having been rerun again and again, creating these rebellions that are great for ratings that inevitably fail, and then doing it all again. And I love this metaphor. It's a great metaphor for Longshot, both in terms of his personality, but also in terms of the Mojoverse in general. That's actually very The Matrix. It kind of is, yeah. I, I think I feel okay about that. I do too. That's, that's one of the cooler concepts from that. Also, I've been on an intense Wachowski kick, so... Fair enough. Well, anyway, Psylocke is able to piece together some of Arise's history, but suddenly, there's interference! So Rogue and Gambit get sent out to scout and presumably bicker and blow each other's clothes off. Now, they're able to quickly find the source of the interference, and it is Mojo's retrieval team, 
Who have we got in the lineup this time? Well, this time we have Tracker's Gog and Gognamagog, who we met in the Longshot Limited series, and also Quark, the aforementioned ram-headed guy, who we also met in that miniseries. Uh, it's really, it was really exciting for me to see them again. Longshot is my favorite freaking miniseries ever, and this may not be the best callback, but it's still cool. Quark, incidentally, is with them now because after being captured, he was summarily brainwashed. So he is fighting for the bad guys for the moment. Also with, with Retrieval Team are two Prime Arena warriors who don't even get names, and an announcer and some cameras. And a lot of these guys are a little bit in awe of the X-Men, who you gotta remember are big Mojoverse stars. Right, I mean, even to the point where Mojo made the X-Babies to capitalize on the success of the X-Men. They're not, however, entirely caught up with current X titles, so Beast does some fairly legitimately charming team disambiguation. Factor does it with a modicum of humor. Force with an overabundance of testosterone. We, the men and ladies of X, do it with a style and panache the others always try but fail to emulate. That is such a gloriously concise disambiguation. I mean, that really kind of does sum it up. Yeah, no, good job, Beast. Uh, you, you got it down. So with both of the cameras wrecked and the X-Men winning, Mojo's folks decide to portal the hell out of there. Now, as they're jumping back through the portal, Wolverine and Rogue overhear the trackers saying something about Longshot and immediately try to jump through the portal after them because, as you'll recall, Longshot is their Outback era bud and they haven't seen him since he just wandered off, you know, a few years back. But Cyclops stops them because jumping through mysterious portals in the middle of missions without your teammates is not actually a super good idea. Typically frowned upon, it's true. Man, I feel so bad for Cyclops trying to wrangle this team. Do you think they, like, put a bunch of stuff in their mouths, too? Oh, man. Wolverine? Drop it. Drop it. Okay, well, with Wolverine, I totally believe that, actually. We did establish a couple episodes ago that he does smoke everything he encounters, so he probably eats it, too. Yeah, but he's got a healing factor. I'm imagining, like, you know, just as he's separating two of them, a third of them is, like, just eating a bunch of chalk, and, like, someone else is p- pulling down the wallpaper. I was going to ask who you thought the least well-behaved X-Man would be at this point, but obviously it's Gambit. Yeah, that that's kind of a given. Especially when Gambit's around Rogue. I feel like Cyclops probably has to separate them a lot. Do you want me to turn this Blackbird around? Do you want me to turn this comic book around? Because I will. He totally would, too, is the thing. He really would. That would... Oh. Aw. <laughs> that's our Scotty. Yeah, I, I have a lot of, of sympathy for this for the whole grown-up-in-the-room situation. Yeah, fair enough. Meanwhile, in the Mojoverse, speaking of maybe grown-ups in the room, a mysterious individual is watching and plotting against Mojo. But there's no time to think about who, because we're diving right into Uncanny X-Men Annual number 16, The Masters of Inevitability. These titles don't necessarily relate to what's going on, but they do sound really cool. Now, this issue is written by Fabian Nicieza and drawn by only one artist, that being Jay Lee. Um, and, you know, it reads and looks pretty good. This is not a bad issue at all. Well, Jay Lee is very good at the art. Now we start in the Mojoverse, where a bunch of much less human-looking than last chapter rebels are annihilated by TV-themed villains called the Death Sponsors. Okay, first of all, that's a really stupid name and I love it. Second, I wish these guys were more themed and more over the top. Like, some of them have vaguely kind of connected to their name powers, but it just didn't take them far enough. 
Well, I'll just go down the list as best I can. Let's see if we can just encapsulate their deal. We have a spikier sim-looking guy named Dead Air, a white and mostly naked frenzy-looking lady named Time Slot, a communist acolyte named Leiden. Well, okay, she wears red and she holds something that looks like a sickle at one point. I'm not... I doubt she's actually a communist in the Mojoverse, but still. We have the Predator, except he's named Sweepsweek. And, wait, before you go on, I want to make sure you all know how Sweepsweek is spelled here. Because it is S-W-E-E-P-Z-W-E-A-K. That's wrong twice. Yeah, what, what does this spelling mean? Who knows? Anyway, and lastly, we have Warlock, if he was a burning skeleton, named Cancelator. But I really do enjoy Time Slot's line here as she annihilates the, the good guys. You make us blush, we make you bleed. That hardly seems symmetrical. Did Strong Bad create this team? In my head canon, yes. Yes, he absolutely did, and now this comic is better. I just... What the hell? What the hell? Well, anyway, the death sponsors are led by a monstrous Mojo-looking silhouette who's apparently Mojo's ratings rival from the end of the last chapter. Weirdly enough, his silhouette looks nothing like it will end up looking later. Probably some miscommunication among the editors and the art teams, and eh, whatever. So these guys are on Earth to once again track Arise because everyone wants to track Arise. And they are specifically looking to broadcast footage of fights with you know, Spiral, Longshot, and or Arise, and they're doing it to cement the ratings of their pirate network. Yeah, so that's going to be a whole thing. Weirdly enough, the Pirate Network plot is actually going to be resolved in, like, I think a Marvel Comics Presents story, or no, Marvel Fanfare story way later. We'll probably cover that because I love Mojoverse stuff. But meanwhile, at the Xavier School, the gold team is in the Danger Room, apparently in their own version of the Kobayashi Maru, which in this case is just a burning building. You know, it's so much better when there are Klingons or Romulans, either way, really. Well, there aren't those, but there is Apocalypse out of nowhere, who's going to strangle Bishop unless Colossus lets the building collapse to crush a mutant kid that Apocalypse wants dead. You know, there's actually the Star Trek novel, which is a collection of sort of short stories of a bunch of characters talking about their Kobayashi Maru tests, and it's great. Highly recommended. That does sound really great. I feel like we should just cram this chapter directly into that book. Anyway, Bishop's a solution to the unwinnable problem is to threaten to blow his own head off so that Apocalypse loses his leverage. Um, I don't think Kirk would have done that, but Lucas Bishop? Yeah, he totally would have. Um, Xavier and Jean, meanwhile, are talking to Arise, whose memories are all scrambled. Jean finds out what we already know from the Longshot series, which is that Arise's race was the spineless ones. Arise made bipeds to stand tall and build himself, you know, a fake spine and some fancy metal legs. But the spineless ones enslaved the bipeds. Uh, so then Arise made a being with self-determination to change things up. And that was Longshot. Now, the new information here is that Arise was the only sane spineless one because his mind was clear of transmissions. What does that mean? Stay tuned. Yeah, we're going to be getting into that a little bit later. Also, this sort of makes him a mutant, although it kind of makes him an unmutant. Like, he's the only, maybe he's the only baseline spineless one. I mean, this is an era where they were turning everybody into mutants because the comics sold better that way. I think this is around when Cloak and Dagger were suddenly mutants. There's a great riff on that during Dark Reign. But, um, yeah, it's sort of the opposite of right now, or the, the era of making everyone not mutants. Well, anyway, Gold Team is going to be on this Arise-based mission now, because the Blue Team is off doing, I don't know, something, and Xavier says that Jean's a better telepath than Psylocke, which seems weird because Jean was without her telepathy for, like, a long time, but whatever. I think Xavier just likes her better. 
I mean, that's probably true. Psylocke is kind of an asshole a lot of the time in this era. Well, Psylocke also joined the team as an adult rather than being, you know, groomed for fighting bad guys from, like, elementary school age. True, true. But regardless of who's a better telepath, the Death Sponsors don't care because they teleport nearby and start attacking the mansion. And everyone fights for the next 11 pages. Give or take, yeah, like we said, I mean, these are very long comics, but not a lot happens aside from a great deal of punching. Suffice to say, there's punching, and it's pretty cool, and the bad guys are about to teleport away with Arise after they capture him, but Bishop uses a neat little trick. He shoots time slot in the head, and that makes their teleportation portal explode. Bishop has an explanation, kind of. Hasta la vista, baby. The gamble paid off. Arise wasn't linked to their cybernet, so he stayed. Wow. I, I have some opinions about the odds of idioms being preserved intact for that long, but I suspect I'm the only person who actually cares about that, so I will leave them for now. I just really enjoy that Bishop's excuse makes almost no sense, and this says it doesn't even bother to try. So, Arise, he's okay. He's still around. The death sponsors are, you know, dead sponsors. And during the fight, Arise had his memory restored to, I guess, make him suffer to show that he was responsible for people dying. That was a dick move. And he decides that the thing for him to do is to head off on his own to do some thinking about things. I must discover how my world went wrong by discovering what is right about this one. And you have given me the start I need, my friends. For, sadly ironic though it be, the very thing which makes us pariahs on our respective worlds are being born mutants also seems to be the very thing which makes us so uniquely human and humane. Fare thee well, X-Men. May we all deal as best we can with the burden of birth we bear, and do what we can to make this a better place than when we found it. So he talks like a pirate now. I, I guess so. Nisiez's version of uh, his dialogue is a little bit different. Uh, anyway, Arise just sort of heads off. I feel like, I don't know, maybe the X-Men should give him, like, a sandwich to take with him, or a map, or bus fare, or anything. Dude, he doesn't need bus fare. He has fancy robot legs. He can just skitter or whatever. I just feel like a bus would get him there faster, wherever there ends up being. Yeah. You know, he does his own thing. His, his beard will keep him safe. Well, that takes us to X-Factor Annual number 10, The Historians of Tales to Come. This is... Again, a fairly comparatively simple creative team. It's written by Nicieza, penciled by Joe Quesada, inked by Joe Rubenstein, colored by Kevin Tinsley, lettered by Richard Starkings. Now, as we learned previously, a rival network is stealing Mojo's airways waves and making sure he gets blamed for their failures. Oh, snap. And Mojo decides it is time to call in the big guns. Specifically, it is time to call in Spiral and possibly to do some actual journalism, although that plot point gets immediately lost. But it does make for some great mojo dialogue. Yeah, and this, this mojo sounds a bit more like the one one we're used to. So Major Domo tells, tells Mojo that no one's going to trust news coming from him, to which Mojo responds, I know! I know! That's what makes it so very exhilarating! No one will trust my motives or my sincerity! Not even me! Plus, he distractedly crushes a nearby couple of news anchors for no reason. That's our mojo. Meanwhile, back at X-Factor headquarters... It's that fucking mayonnaise gag all over again, like, exactly. Yeah, weird. Yeah, um, and Alex is concerned about Pietro using his speed power, which I thought had been resolved by now. But anyway, the, the, the big important takeaway, the only thing you really need to pull out of this is that Pietro takes salads really damn seriously. 
because Val Cooper shows up after the various Mayo-related carnage and says, I look forward to the day, boys and girls, when I can walk in here and find my little X-Factor team performing some sort of tactical maneuvers or exercise sessions in preparation for some world-threatening menace instead of the usual frivolity. And Pietro replies, Sustenance is not frivolous. I love it. I love it so much. Anyway, Val points out that Spiral has been causing trouble, and Val was the one that recruited Spiral for the Freedom Force, so she feels kind of responsible and wants to get her back on the straight and narrow. Val, this is not going to work. This would never have worked. In fact, recruiting Spiral made no sense to begin with. And seriously, I thought you were supposed to be the pragmatic badass here, Val. But anyway... X-Factor heads off. Val insists on coming along for this because she feels personally responsible for it. And the best way to exercise that personal responsibility is to make her superhero team also have to protect her while they're going after a supervillain. Alas, they are too late to stop Spiral from showing up and wreaking havoc at the Crow Creek Reservation, where she threatens a lot of people because she wants to find a rise. The rise, as we learn, is basically holed up in a cabin, making mix videos for the Mojoverse to teach them to be good. And man, I, I really, I, I feel like Arise is in for some really tough lessons about how um, very not great Earth was in a lot of ways in 1992. Maybe it's all like Sesame Street and Reading Rainbow. I would hope so. I feel like if he had sent PBS to the Mojoverse, that would have changed a lot of things. Oh man, yeah. So there's, there's a Jim Henson exhibit at the Museum of the Moving Image right now, and it's so good. Oh yeah, you sent me a picture of one of the original Skeksis models from the Dark Crystal, and I was so jealous, that's so cool. Yes, it is, it's tremendous. It's also got a bunch of his, his like, placards and poster designs, and, you know, obviously what we know of Jim Henson's career and, like, the stuff that gets a lot of play is his 3D stuff and his Muppets, but man, he was such a good 2D designer, too. Oh, man, what a what a great freaking mind and heart. Ah, I miss that guy. Anyway, um, obviously, he's the one who's going to be saving the Mojoverse here. But meanwhile, Spiral burns down the reservation and storms off to go after Arise. Um, X-Factor shows up just behind her. Now, Spiral is after Arise, not on an errand from Mojo, but because she believes that Arise ruined her life, or at least that he will in the future. But she's holding back in the fight, and X-Factor actually manages to take her down and calm her down long enough for her to tell her genuinely awesome, genuinely tragic story. How do you explain tragedy? You can only recount the agony of one's past or future, not explain it. I was a dreamer who found herself a walking nightmare. I was a human who ate life with an appetite for adventure, who is now content digesting death. My name so long ago was, was Rita, Ricochet Rita. I fell in love with a fellow dreamer from another world named Longshot. We journeyed to his world to fulfill his dream of freeing his people from an oppressive tyrant, and we failed. And it was only then that I learned that Longshot was known as the Fallen Messiah, a man destined to fall again and again, a perpetual rerun of futility. It was then that Mojo decided to toy with me. He opened my mind to the time between time, the space between space, and showed me how to dance between them all. Then he coerced a rise to physically transform me through biocybernic implants. I became as twisted of body as I was of mind. Then Mojo perpetrated perhaps the cruelest jest of all. 
He programmed me to time dance backwards, to try to stop Longshot from ever fleeing to Earth, to capture Rita, to help Mojo open her mind to insanity. Just so she could escape to join Longshot on his doomed quest, Mojo turned me into a tormented time loop, a stained glass fractured version of Longshot himself, destined to perpetuate my own downfall again and again. Damn. That is how you do a retcon. This is one of my favorite retcons in all of X-Men history because Nesenti never intended Spiral and Rita to be the same person. I think she intended uh, Spiral to be Longshot's ex-wife from before he lost his memories or something. But this is perfect. That level of pathos, that level of sympathy within a villain who's as messed up as Spiral, it works so well. It adds so much heart to it. What it doesn't quite add is sense, because Spiral blames Arise for this, which seems a bit unfair. Um, he was involved, but only kind of tangentially. And Arise says, yeah, that, you know, whatever, it, it's on me. And actually, I'm responsible for all of the current bloodshed because I made the slave race and then they rebelled. So clearly everything's my fault, I guess, now. Well, Spiral says that the struggle will not end for more than a century, quote... Until the male child of a human and a rise spawn leads the way. And she specifies that that kid's name is going to be... Shatterstar. I mean, I think at that point everyone just sort of paused for a moment and then started giggling. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, it was 1992. Imagine if she'd said Shatty Buns instead. Well... At that point, they would have taken it completely seriously. And also, Farrell would have showed up to get very, very aroused by this whole prospect. But the good guys convinced Spiral to go try to break the cycle, to go back to the Mojoverse and to try to fix this. And she and Arise do exactly that, portaling through time and space to the Mojoverse. Which brings us to the final annual we're going to be looking at today, X-Force Annual Number 1, The Mirror Liars. Mirror Liars is... It looks like it should be hard to say, but it's not that hard at all. Well, this is written by Fabian Nicieza and drawn by Greg Capullo, who will actually become the regular X-Force artist later, and whose work is pretty good. We open in the future of Mojo World, where spineless ones brutally battle the bipedal Freeman-armed network Garrison, uh, or Fang, in an arena, watched and filmed and ruled over by Shatterstar himself. Apparently, Shatty Buns is the master programmer here in the future Mojoverse and has been for over a decade. He explains. The masses are entertained. The old ways are preserved. Only now they are our ways, not those of the spineless ones. Their past is our present. Their sins are our salvation. Their crimes are our laws. So, I know he's master programmer. I know he is. And yet I can't stop almost saying master control program. I have the exact same problem, yeah. Well, I mean, think about it. X-Force and Tron, like, they have a totally different aesthetic, but they have the same kind of, like, gee whiz, how cool is this feel to them? So, you know, I'm okay with that. All right. Well, Shatterstar, it's not all fun and games and poetic language because he's really questioning, is this really better than before? Or has the oppression just been reversed now? Um, spoiler, yeah, the oppression has totally just been reversed. Yep. Meanwhile... On Earth 84309, this is this is a future, a splinter future timeline of the 616 we started in, Arise and two spineless ones arrive at what was once the X-Mansion. So Arise narrates that X-Force came to Mojo World 10 years ago to take out Mojo 5, and now Arise is here to find a way to overthrow that successful rebellion. 
suddenly we see X-Force, but Cable's dead, so this is kind of a kinder, gentler X-Force. They are led by Cannonball, and along with him are Sunspot and Siren, who pretty much are like they were before, but older. Um, Siren's got a short haircut, which is really great. Uh, Sunspot apparently went the opposite direction and, and has 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 gone, gotten a sort of righteous uh, Mojoverse-style mullet, and there are a few new members as well. So my favorite is Power Packs, P-O-W-E-R-P-A-X. This is a teen girl named Frankie, and she has all of the Power Packs powers, and also a denim vest with all of their logos on it. Now, we'll see Alex Power as a different version of Power Packs, but with a similar costume to this one later on in the main continuity when he steals his sibling's power and works with the new warriors. But th- this actually isn't the first time we've seen someone with all of the Power Packs powers, because... The old Katie power from Earth 87050, which is the one where there were evil magma and sunspot, had also ended up with all of her siblings' powers, um, although somewhat more tragically, I think. Speaking of things that involve tragedy, we also have... Darkchild, but this is actually the non-tragic Darkchild. This is, this is the D.H. Diliana who got all fixed up, now all grown up, and uh, happily swinging around a soul sword that just seems to work like a regular sword. Well, no, it only cuts living material. It doesn't cut anything synthetic. That seems improbable. I bet it would cut through something synthetic that was flimsy enough. I don't know. That's the way she describes it. We also have Cyberlock. This is a mix of Doug Ramsey and of Warlock, both dead in the main continuity at this point. Cyberlock is very solemn and robotic, and interestingly enough, is damn near identical to the Douglock, who we'll meet in a couple years of time, uh, who turns out to have a very different nature. Cyberlock kind of sounds like a dance move that never quite caught on. Cyberlock sounds like a dance move where you do it and like one in every four times you actually permanently injure yourself and they start putting out public service announcements about how you shouldn't cyberlock and they have solemn looking doctor doctors talking about this. Oh, so do you do it in conjunction with two slap wraps? Oh, that's probably it. And there's a Stretch Armstrong doll involved also. Oh, it's just dangerous. Wait, were those dangerous? Oh, they got recalled. Apparently they could come open and they were full of these little beads and kids ate them and died or something. Yeah, no, I remember the beads, but I thought the other stuff in them was pretty much corn syrup. I don't know. Maybe it was just that the kids were choking on the beads. Uh, regardless, sorry, Stretch Armstrong. Although I think he just had a resurgence kind of recently. I'm not sure if it was a toy or in some other media property. I don't know. I'm not a Stretch Armstrong expert. Maybe we could do another podcast. Jay and Miles Stretch Splain Stretch Armstrong. It would be one episode. Maybe we could get someone else to do that. Yeah, that probably sounds better. I feel like we can, we can stay in our lane on this one. Now, there's a big fight. And X-Force thoroughly wins, um managing to, to knock the spineless ones off their, their little spider-leg walkers. And Arise explains that he is here to try to get X-Force's help to take out Shatterstar. The very leader they helped instill in the Mojoverse. So apparently, here's the deal. The last time Arise left Earth, he had transmitted these positive earthly signals, PBS or whatever, to the Mojo world... But that time twisted through the various temporospatial portals and pathways between Earth and the Mojoverse to cause all the spineless ones to go insane way back at the beginning of their history. And that's the initial madness that Arise was attempting to cure with these broadcasts, because the Mojoverse is all about ironic time loops. It totally is. And I mean, I gotta say, since the Mojoverse is based around media and television, like, having a great deal of dramatic irony works pretty well for it. Yeah, but it's really repetitive dramatic irony. I mean, this is basically the same thing as both Longshot and Spiral's rerun cycles. 
Yeah, that also fits with television. I mean, if there, there's no plot line so good that you can't just rerun it into the ground. So after Arise accidentally initially broke the Mojoverse, he then teamed up with Spiral and the blue team of the X-Men to go fight Mojo 1 and 2. I think we're going to get that in the upcoming X-Men arc. Uh, yeah, the adjectiveless X-Men arc that comes after this that is kind of related to Shattershot and kind of not. Well, anyway... Then X-Force, in our future, Arise's past because of all the time weirdness, defeated Mojo 5 and installed Shatterstar as the new leader, as we've seen. The plan now, from Arise and from the spineless ones he's teamed up with, is to abolish network rule completely, set up a democracy where the spineless ones and the bipeds can both just, you know, be people and not, like, horribly oppress each other. Did we learn nothing from the Cold War and the Tom Lair song Send the Marines Arise? Apparently, he was so busy looking at PBS that he uh, missed out on Tom Lehrer, which is quite unfortunate, I think. What station was... Oh, no, it would have been it would have been all media from 1992. So here's the question. What came out in 1992 that was bad enough to drive an entire planet mad? Hmm. I mean, some of the comic books that were out at the time. I don't really remember. I know that I had some Ninja Turtles toys that came out in 1992 because their packaging, like those blister packs they came in, had a little sticker on the front that said new for 92 because it rhymed. That may have been when the characters started getting really weird, like a lion mutant named King Lionheart, which made no sense. And uh, there was Muckman and Joe Eyeball. Actually, Muckman and Joe Eyeball were some of my favorites. They'd last touched garbage before they mutated, so they sort of turned into garbage, and it was awesome. But there was this pizza chef who I guess had just touched pizza. The rules were being played fast and loose with at this point. And so he had a peg leg that was a long pizza cutter stabbed into a pizza box and he was super gross and I did not like him. And the paint job on that action figure didn't match the sculpt and it made me sad and I'm still mad. So maybe that. If we're going to time loop it, I've got a theory. Okay. Do you remember the episode of Pete and Pete called Space Geeks and Johnny Unitas? Oh yeah, Totally. And how it's about the delayed broadcasts that an alien might get in another planet from Earth. Right. So my theory is that that episode somehow got sucked into the Mojoverse. And because it was already that meta, just fundamentally, by nature of the layers of cross-referentiality, created the loop. Oh, man. I thought the adventures of Pete and Pete could do no ill, but they kind of ruined everything in the Mojoverse. Oh, sorry. Yeah, but then later on, they kind of fixed it. You know, I've been looking for what else was out that year. What else might have contributed to this? Um, the X-Men animated series, obviously, and the Batman animated series both debuted that year, as did Hangin' with Mr. Cooper, the entire sci-fi channel, and uh, Barney and Friends. I mean, I think overall that's a positive balance, but, you know, time spirals, they mess everything up. You know, you throw in enough enough other things. You've got Newsies, Lethal Weapon 3, Alien 3. Ooh, that might have done it. I love Alien 3. I just read an article on the AV Club today about how it's an underappreciated classic, and I agree. But that doesn't mean that it wouldn't necessarily have driven an alternate universe mad, especially one that was familiar with the brood. Yeah, true. And also Alien 3, um, it's it's a pretty rough movie. I mean, ugh, ouch. Mm, Death Becomes Her, which, to be fair, is actually an awesome movie. Mm-hmm. Well... Anyway, it's not mentioned, so I fear that is lost to theory. Who's not lost are X-Force, who head to the Mojo World in disguise, or at least to the Mojo World Arena, which is where most of the story happens. I feel like that was the set they paid for, so they just keep setting all the scenes there. And man, Frankie, presumably Frankie Power, is delightful. Some of her lines... Scope out the pudding heads! And... He is a hunk factory! 
she's basically baby Jubilee. I would think Baby Boom Boom even more, but she's wonderful. I wish we got to see more of her. But meanwhile, in the arena, a disguised arise. Oh, that's great. Say that again. Disguised arise. Very nice. Plus his spineless one, Buds, uh, they're in an arena fight, and they win thanks to Arise's biped genetic paralyzer. Arise unmasks, which shocks the hell out of Shatterstar. At which point, X-Force borrows a page from X-Factor's playbook and busts straight through the wall to talk Shatterstar into instituting democratic rule. And Shatterstar actually doesn't take much convincing at all. No more oppression. No more deceit. The architects of the Great Overthrow are here to tell us we have lost our way. I'm really enjoying your super sincere take on Shatterstar's lines. But Shatterstar's Vizier-esque scheduler throws Shatterstar over the balcony, and there is pandemonium. A giant fight breaks out between everyone and everyone. It's okay, though, because Cannonball manages to save Shatterstar by way of his blast field. And Shatterstar is excited about this. It is good to see you again, Guthrie. All of you. It would appear I have not done so good a job ruling my world. You had Cable for an example. What can you expect? Valid. Shatterstar and the Scheduler duel. Apparently, the bipeds only sent Shatterstar to Earth as a sacrificial figurehead, but he got soft there. Shatterstar says no way he learned to be truly human there. Also, we've only got the Scheduler's word for this, and it's reasonably probable that the Scheduler is just trying to mess with, with Shatterstar's head. Well... Despite the chance of the crowd, once Shatterstar takes the scheduler down, he spares his opponent, saying, The time has come for a new way, where the swords of war are replaced with the outstretched hands of love. Shatterstar's mind changes so quickly, but you know, he's not wrong, so I feel just fine about that. He's a lover, not just a fighter. <laughs> well, Arise says that the spineless ones have implants now to block the transmissions that were messing with people's minds. But the biped's problem isn't sort of genetic like that. It's not caused by weird temporal distortions. It's cultural, and they're going to have to fix it culturally through effort and free will. But he's pretty damn sure that it can be, and everybody starts chanting free will, and it's a great big happy ending with a delightful little coda. You mean aside from the general irony of a group of people chat, chanting a free will in unison? We are all individuals. The, the, the coda here is a hooded elderly figure who unmasks in the background so we can see his wizened face and his still glorious blonde mullet. Free man indeed. After so very long. Free man in word and deed. In body and soul. Gotcha. Aw, hi, very old Longshot. I know, it's so charming. I mean, this is a story called Shattershot, and the thing that disappointed me most when I first read it when I was younger is that Longshot's not really in it, but here it's only a tiny little cameo, but Longshot finally gets to win. Longshot finally gets to rest, and it's so goddamn heartwarming. Aw, good for him. But you know who doesn't get to rest? That would be us, because we've still got backups to cover. We do. Now, there are like a billion of these, so we're just going to try to go through them very, very quickly. Um, when one is really awesome and we think you should read it, we will let you know. So let's start with the backup from X-Men Annual number one, Inside the X-Mansion. This is basically just a th labeled 3D map of the X-Mansion. It's fun and cool, but ultimately it's pretty much irrelevant, since artists from here on are still going to continue to do what they've always done, which is lay the place out however they feel like in any given issue. 
but we get some awesome little factoids, which as an information technology professional, I really appreciated. So we learned, for instance, that the danger room generates 32-bit images. That's right. Those holograms that are indistinguishable from reality have graphics like the PlayStation 1. I mean, look, that those were some realistic graphics. I, for one, am about an inch tall and heavily pixelated. I mean, when the PS1 came out, it was pretty awesome, to be fair. And that was after this issue came out. The Danger Room also has 100 tera terabytes of Shi'ar memory. That is a lot of impressively plumaged RAM. I believe that is 100 exabytes. Now, according to whatsabyte.com, merely 5 exabytes would be equal to all the words ever spoken by mankind, so the Shi'ar RAM, with all of its feathered hair, can hold 20 times that. When you say all the words ever spoken by mankind, is that just the vocabulary, or is that literally every sentence combination of words, etc., ever spoken? I think it's like if you recorded everything that everybody ever said and just put it all end-to-end, it would turn into that. Well, the Shi'ar have been around for a really long time, and also there's, there's a lot of hard light processing to be done. It's true, there are a lot of PlayStation 1 graphics to create. It's 1992, half of it's taken up because they're running Bonzi Buddy. Oh god, that freaking thing. <laughs> anyway, X-Men Annual Number 1 has a second backup story, the X-Men Villains Gallery. This is just basically a countdown of the X-Men's top 10 villains with Jubilee and Wolverine, and those are, in reverse or- order, at spot number 10, Mojo. Number 9, Reavers. Number 8, Sentinels. Number 7, The Brood. Number 6, The Upstarts. Really? Number five, Omega Red. Really? Really? (laughs) That dude did one thing. He was in one story, and I don't even know if it was fully out when this was written. Uh, Boo! Omega Red doesn't belong there. Boo! You get more respectable with slot number four, which goes to Apocalypse, complete with a brief nod to the jungle adventure. Number three, Mr. Sinister. Number two, Magneto. And number one is a little surprising. It is specifically hatred, fear, and ignorance. Jubilee, who's hearing this list from Wolverine, thought it would be the Shadow King, which, I mean, fair point, he was kind of the biggest X-Men villain at this point. But, you know, hatred, fear, and ignorance, yeah, yeah, I feel okay about that. So, we're set with the X-Men. Let's go back to Gold Team and look what's going on in the backups of Uncanny X-Men Annual. We have a story called Angel of Death by Chris Cooper and Jay Lee. It opens with Archangel left for dead in a fight with terrorists. That is, of course, a great cue for a flashback dream. And he remembers something we never saw neatly retconned in. He remembers being nailed to the walls of the Morlock tunnels in the Mutant Massacre and meeting a lady that looks kind of like a blue-skinned person wearing an original costume rogue outfit. This is apparently Amalgam. She calls herself the Angel of Death. She says that he's dying, so he can choose to die finally, or, or still die, but give his powers to her and his identity to her to become a part of her and thus live on. So basically, this is, this is going to be the entire concept behind Legacy from Age of X. Exactly. So the fact that she she looks like Rogue is especially interesting. Amalgam tries to convince Angel to do this whole process by turning into Beast and Cyclops and talking with their faces and voices. I guess they died in the future and time travel is weird for her. Or she claims they did, or he's hallucinating the entire thing. But it works because he says, sure, and she kisses him because that's how you do these things, but finds out that it's not really his time to go and he's going to come to be called the Angel of Death himself. Which, it's true. He will. He will exactly that. So it's a weird little aside with a cool concept for a character that doesn't get explored until a different version of maybe the same character has those powers in a different story. Eh, whatever. But we also have The Roots of the Past from that annual. This is by Skip Dietz and Herb Trimpey. Uh, Herb Trimpey is actually the first artist to draw Wolverine, although John Romita Sr. designed Wolverine. Anyway, it opens with Bishop brooding outside and Storm coming to ask him what's up. 
He responds with his backstory from Uncanny X-Men number 287, which we just covered, so we won't go into again. But he also says that he feels alone and apart from the team, and his memories don't match this timeline. In his time, for instance, the school is demolished and the lake is different. The only thing that he thought would have been the same was an oak tree that survived the school's destruction from the first ex-graduation, and there's no tree here, so there's not even that touchstone. Yeah, Bishop is is having having a rough time, in his words. And so here I am, trapped in the past with legends that aren't what I thought, forced to live through the tragedies and pain and horrors of what the next 70 years will bring. It's like finding out your parents have sex. <laughs> kind of. So he goes off, and uh, he broods so hard that he falls asleep on the lawn, and he awakens to the rain watering a newly planted oak tree, just where he remembered the one he talked about. Aw, Storm, that's actually genuinely sweet and makes me happy, and you should read the story, it's great. That is really sweet, although it implies that, that his oak tree origin was entirely apocryphal and it wasn't actually planted back with the original X-Men. I mean, we already know that his timeline is different than the one we've seen, that it's diverged in a number of key ways, so I think Storm is just making this timeline a little more familiar for him. But, like, not in all the crappy ways, just in the one good way. All right, we're halfway through, so on to X-Factor Annual number 10. Sue's first backup story, Drowning in Paperwork, is written by Peter David, penciled by Derek Robertson, inked by Andrew Papoy, colored by Gina Going, and lettered by Dave Sharp. And we've officially hit the point of X-Men and and continuity where people I actually know really well are starting to make these, which is weird. Yeah, because you're buds with uh, Derek Robertson, who drew Transmetropolitan. Yeah, he has a super excellent human. And this is like baby Derek Robertson. I mean, it's not like Space Beaver baby Derek Robertson, which is super baby Derek Robertson, but it's still, this is... Wow, this is old. This is like, this is four years before Transmet. His work was still really good back then. Yeah, no, it's great. It's got really, really good facial expressions. And he's one of those artists who is so good at like old school rom-com body language in addition to all of the the superhero and sci-fi stuff. And it really pays off in this story. So this is about Val Cooper and she is buried in a mountain of paperwork, but damn it, she's got tickets to the Kennedy Center salute to Motown tonight and she's going to go if it kills her. Um... Alas, the president calls and basically says, look, Val, you got to finish your paperwork. National security depends on it, except it's actually Jamie Madrox who's trying to con her out of the tickets, which she then gives to him and Rain since she obviously can't use them. Jamie and Rain head to the concert and Val falls asleep at her desk where she dreams of fleeing a huge, unstoppable paperwork monster. Which she eventually kills in a scene directly out of the end of Terminator 1, like reaching out for the button as the thing's clawing at her. It's pretty cool. But it doesn't work because it just comes back as a shredded paperwork monster. Fortunately, just in time, Jamie and Rain come back, um, let her know that she can catch the second half of the show. I get the impression that she she eschews it entirely in order to chase them with a knife. But that that's probably better left to the imagination. What is not left to the imagination is the other backup story here. This is uh, Cal and Guido. It is written by Peter David, penciled by Joe Madureira, inked by Andrew Papoy, colored by Kelly Corvus and lettered by David Sharp. In this story, Guido teaches a character who is clearly Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes a valuable lesson about not bullying people even when you have a big, scary, super-powered friend. Variations on this particular cautionary tale get repeated so frequently in superhero comics that I feel no actual need to sum it up. Except to say that I really hate it when people put Calvin in stories about 99.9% of the time, and although the artwork here is charming, this is part of that 99.9%, and also Peter David does not get what makes Susie Durkins awesome, which is disappointing unfortunate. What did not disappoint me was a story from X-Force Annual Number 1 called The Crush that I would not have expected to see because every once in a while, we and the creators remember that X-Force actually used to be New Mutants. And then they remember Taki. 
Yeah, Taki, you remember WizKid from the Ex-Terminators? This sort of grumpy little kid that can do any kind of machinery he wants? Well, he's still at St. Simon's Boarding Academy with Artie and Leech, the pink and green adorable Moppets. Taki has a huge crush on his teacher, Mrs. Huntington, but she's dating this guy, Patrick, who's another teacher there, who has swoopy blonde hair, and Taki is so jealous, even though he's like 10. Taki creeps around, waiting for her to get back from a date with Patrick, and she finds Patrick when they arrive, looking through this teacher's records and talking about filthy mutant scum, and I love his, like, Silver Age villain dialogue as he talks aloud to himself. It was simple to deceive that bubble-headed teacher. I'll be giving her the brush off in a few days. Oh, it's great. But Taki doesn't think it's great, fair enough. So he takes Artie and Leech in a plane that he makes to retrieve the file. But Mrs. Huntington sees them leave and chases after so they don't get the school all fucked and, you know, in, in legal trouble. And indeed, the kids do retrieve it from these horrible racist folks who were going to track down mutant families. But the building burns down in the fight. Thankfully, everybody is still arrested, all the bad guys anyway. Mrs. Huntington is all kinds of sad that her awesome boyfriend was actually a terrible racist, but Taki makes her feel a little bit better by flirting openly with her, saying that he knows a guy, if she can wait a few years, that would be much better. And she smiles. It's actually super charming, and it really does feel of a kind with the old Exterminators era stuff. It's also the last appearance of Taki for like 15 years, but you know, it's a good one. It does a good job of being a story about a kid with a crush on an adult where everything stays really age-appropriate, and Taki is smart enough to know that this probably isn't going to go anywhere. I assume that he's spending the 15 years, like, training in a monastery to be super awesome to come back and, and sweep Mrs. Huntington off her feet or something. No, actually, he's hacking the planet and being a, a radical underground disability activist. We know this. Taki's amazing. I feel good about that. I know that he shows up in Avengers Academy many years later. That just leaves us with one little backup, X-Force Villains Gallery. That's right, it is another top 10 countdown, which they actually did a lot of this year. Apparently there was a top 10 embarrassing Spider-Man moments, and guess what was included? Was it the time he taught the Beyonder to poop? <laughs> it surely was. Wait, I just realized, did we forget the Blackbird? Oh, uh, yeah, there was like a little backup diagram, sort of like the X-Mansion diagram. Right, no, but of the Blackbird, and the Blackbird is wonderful, and we should at least acknowledge it, because it is a good and trusty plane, despite being wildly implausible, and it is a good and trusty friend to Warlock, and it gets people places really fast, and is surprisingly durable. We love you, the Blackbird. Keep on being you. Um, anyway... We do have that last story, that top 10 X-Force villains. This is a pop quiz uh, from Cable for his team, basically just identifying people based on pictures, which, I mean, eh, X-Force isn't the most academic team, so I'm okay with that. In descending order, once again, we have Mask. New Weapon X. Black Tom and Juggernaut, who they fought once, but eh, sure. GW Bridge. Deadpool. The New Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Gideon and Sunspot, like, together. And at this point, Sam is really pissed hearing about this because Cable's talking about how to attack Sunspot, and Sunspot's like Sam's best bro. So that's not cool, but Cable continues with a countdown. Proteus. Strife. And finally, the X-Men. Their methods and ideologies directly conflict with our own agendas. A clash with them is inevitable. So you know how Xavier has Xavier protocols? Mm-hmm. Do you think Cable just has those, but, like, for literally everyone he meets? Yeah, but his whole solution to fighting everybody is just shoot him in the face. It's much simpler. Yeah. He just has, like, those little uh, quotation marks that means, like, the line above is the same. He's a simple man with, with you know, simple, simple methods. Those are ditto marks. Mm -hmm. Ditto marks. There we go. 
Anyway, the whole team gets angry and leaves, especially Cannonball and Boom Boom, and Domino calls Cable out on being kind of an idiot. This is strange, though. Like, Boom Boom didn't really have a good experience with the X-Men. Back when she showed up in, at the X-Mansion in that one issue from Secret Wars 2, they just gave her the brush off. But then I remembered that the 05, who were X-Factor at the time, are now on the X-Men, and she has affection for them. So, yeah, I'll buy that. Well, and even more, Cannonball is fairly loyal to the X-Men, and Boom Boom is fairly loyal to Cannonball. So, okay, so that's Shattershot. What's what's our consensus? Um, One of our consensus is that I'm really glad that this is the last time Marvel did one of these a bunch of annuals form one big story thing, because goddamn, that is just too much material. The next set of annuals they do are going to be the 93 ones, where they introduce a bunch of new characters, one in each annual. Guess who they're introducing? Guess who they're introducing? Um... Adam X, the Extreme. Great. Oh, I'm really excited. But yeah, Shattershot, I don't know. Like you said, I think it's better than its reputation would have us believe. It is kind of a mess. I'm not going to say it holds together, but it's actually really enjoyable. And especially with all the backup stories crammed in, there's just like a whole lot of content. There's a whole lot of story. And whoever you are, you're probably going to find something you like. Yeah, this is what I want annuals to feel like. And I'm kind of okay with the crossing over across the whole X line, especially given the huge amount of backup content in there. In addition to the backup stories, there are also pinup galleries in, in every issue, and they're really, really cool and a really wide range of artists, including some we've seen before on a lot of X titles and really loved. So yeah, I I genuinely enjoyed this. I don't know that Shattershot is particularly a good story, but it's an enjoyable and interesting read. It totally is. So I think only about half of it's on Marvel Unlimited, and, like, the version of the X-Force issue they have there doesn't even have the main story. So it's kind of weird to find. I don't think it's been collected, but, you know, if you can track it down, yeah, go for it. You know, it's from an era where they were massively overprinting, so this stuff turns up in back-issue bins pretty regularly. It's true. Who also turns up really regularly is our awesome listeners and their awesome questions. Andre Amarado asks on Tumblr, Just curious if you know of any Brazilian characters from the Marvel Universe. I'm familiar with Sunspot, Shark Girl, and Andre the Lobotomized Janitor from Generation X that Wolverine met one time in Brazil. Are there any other characters, preferably X-Men? Well, there's sort of magma since Nova Roma is inside Brazil, but that probably doesn't count. Now, as for actual Brazilian characters, there are a few, but they tend to be characters that just each show up in one issue and then don't come back again. Now, I'm going to limit this to characters from Earth-616 for the sake of brevity. So first, we have Kura Dizenest. Sorry about the pronunciation, I'm doing my best. He's a mutant villain from Wolverine Sodad, the same story that the aforementioned Andre Maxer came from. We also have Antonio Agassiz. That's a mutant time traveler who is in an issue of Cy Spurrier's X-Force run. Does he also play tennis? Um, I, I don't think so, but it really does sound similar, doesn't it? Then we have Captain Forza, who is a murdered superhero from a single issue of Alpha Flight, Renata de Lima, a homeless mutant girl from the Muties miniseries, and also Zande, Juliana Jararaca, and Thiago Piranha from an issue of Cable about a superpowered arena in Brazil. Huh. Now there's also Wolverine Black Rio, a one-shot that presumably has lots of Brazilian characters since it's set in Brazil, but I don't think any of them come back or are all that memorable, so whatevs. And there's Costas Prado, the brother-in-law of Silver Surfer's Don Greenwood from the recent slot and all-red Silver Surfer run, which I love, and I know it's not X-related, but you should read that run, it's great. Uh, we'll break the 616-only rule for one specific character in the... In one episode of Marvel Superhero Squad, Captain Britain teams up with the All-Captain Squad, which includes Captain Brazil. 
and her costume is really great, although her proportions are very strange, as are every character in that show. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, I'm curious what your thoughts are regarding the child prostitute aspect of X-23's story. In reading through her titles, I decided to skip past NYX because I realized the subject matter made me pretty uncomfortable, though it seems to continue to be an important theme in the 2010 ongoing. Do you feel that it's a necessary and worthwhile component of Laura's character, or possibly a misguided attempt at making her more edgy or gritty? Okay, so there are kind of two separate questions here for me, namely whether it's a component, a story component that rings true for the character, and whether it was a good idea to do it, regardless of the answer to that first one. So my answer to the first question is, is actually yes, absolutely. Um, Laura is a character who is very explicitly and specifically conditioned to, among other things, not recognize her own bodily autonomy. And given her background and conditioning, the fact that she ended up where she did when she ran away kind of makes sense to me. Um, her life as, as an underage, not particularly consensual sex worker under an abusive pimp wasn't that different structurally from her life at the lab. Yeah, and when you look at it in that parallel, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think you see to some extent her relationship to both of those things changing over time um, in, in interesting ways. As for whether it should have been done, ooh, I have really mixed feelings about this. Because on one hand, yeah, I do feel like it's an interesting addition and that specifically the parallels between Laura's life as a prostitute. And I should qualify here that, that I am not generalizing and saying that this is true of all sex workers, but in Laura's specific situation, her life as a prostitute and her life at the lab as X-23 are really powerful parallels to explore. On the other hand, it still feels kind of gross and prurient and it falls into a trope that I fucking hate, which is making sexual trauma a part of every female character's backstory. Um, which again is one of those things where if you've got a really good narrative reason for it to be there, it can make sense to do, but which is used so sloppily, so frequently, that it makes even the better depictions kind of fundamentally suspect. That's actually a really good summation, and I agree because parts of it make sense. I would all of it makes sense, but it's just whether it's handled well. I mean, for me, uh, the listener used a phrase "misguided attempts at edginess and grittiness," and for me, that's something that the NYX miniseries did kind of a lot of, and that was one example of that. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think you're right, and I think it's a story that I would like to, and a parallel I would like to see explored better and handled better than it, for the most part, has been so far. Agreed. Meanwhile, and unrelatedly, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and some levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Let's start it off with Angry Claremontian, narrator. You thought you could break the circle of fate, free yourself from the mad whims of a time-traveling tyrant with the power to warp causality itself. But even your hapless rebellion is part of the cycle in which you are trapped. From Chris Fitz to Rodrigo Kuligovsky to Chris Fitz and so on and on and on until the stars crumble and the universe implodes into a single point of white static on your darkened screen. And now for something completely different, which is to say, sexy arise. They call me the creator of life, they do. The maker of the new, the inventor of revolution. But why stop at spines, at clones, at transmissions through time, I ask? 
make more subtle devices I could. More erotic machines. More sensual upgrades. Fancy you a second spine, Ian Gibb? Or a third? Sturdier forms mean a sexier future, they do. Of real Hannah Jones, perhaps some new sex antennae. Many options those give. War claims the Mojoverse, true, but we rebels. We know the opposite of war isn't peace. It's troubling cyborg sex. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. And troubling cyborg sex. Nope. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And next week, be sure to tune back in for our 200th episode. That's... that's a lot. I think we might need an adult. How about Louis Simonson? What?! God, that was a lot of comics.